Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. your Bibles, John chapter 15 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, I know that's a surprise to you all, but uh, John chapter 15 is where we're going to pick up. Last week, we really kind of did a part one of a, of a two-part sermon, and so we're going to pick up where we left off, but before we do that, just as a means of introduction, one of the things that we really see in this passage is almost the idea of Christ on trial, um, and what's interesting about this is Jesus kind of flips the idea of Christ being on trial and then makes to some degree, an accusation against those people who are placing him on trial. When we come to this, we are really nearing the end of Jesus' teaching ministry, and we're easing into his uh, priestly ministry is kind of the way that I like to define it, that he is coming to lay down his life for his people, to intercede for them, and to ransom them to himself. And so as we come to this passage, I would like for you to consider a couple of things. First, I would like you to consider the unique and overwhelming evidence that Christ has given to all those who have seen him that he is exactly who he says he is. That he is not only exactly who he says he is, he is exactly who the Old Testament has foretold him to be. And not only that, but we would also consider who we are and our ability to view and to behold Christ as he is in our natural state. There are two things that I really desire us to walk away with this morning. First is the grace of God through Christ to reveal himself to fallen and wretched people. But secondly, that we might look to the Spirit of God as the only one who is able to help us to see Jesus as he is. That apart from the Spirit's work, we would see him as just a man. Perhaps even we would perceive him as a myth. Perhaps we would see him as a historical figure, but it is only through the illumination of the Spirit of God that we can see Jesus as he has revealed himself to be. And so my hope this morning is that we will walk away exalting Christ, but also just praising the Spirit of God for his ability to look and to work in the hearts of people who are blind altogether and give them eyes to see that they might behold Christ as he is. So if you would, please join me uh, for the reading of God's word. And if you would, please stand. John chapter 15, we'll read verses 18 through the end of the chapter. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. John chapter 15, verse 18 and following says this, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, They would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. 
If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Let's pray together. Father, we come trusting in the authority of your word. Even as we will see and look into the work of the Spirit of God, we are even now reading his work. Lord, that by your grace you have given the Spirit to inspire men to pen the infallible words of God, that when we come to them, we actually do have truth with no mixture of error. And so, Father, we come humbly to submit under their word. We come humbly to submit under your authority. And so, Father, I ask you, as we walk through this passage, would you aid me? For this is a task that is far too lofty for men. But by the Spirit, Lord, I pray that you would lead us into truth and that you would apply these truths to the hearts of your people. But, Lord, I also pray that if there be any here who do not know you, whose eyes are closed to the beauties of the gospel, would you, by the power of the Spirit of God, open their eyes that they might see and behold Christ for who he is, coming only to bow in humble submission under him and to see him as Lord God and King. It is in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, the sermon in a sentence is this, and I wish you knew how much time it took me to get this down to a sentence. Um, The sermon in a sentence is this. The person, word, and work of Jesus sufficiently teach that he is the Christ. The Spirit then effectually witnesses to this truth. I want you to notice a couple of distinctions in those phrasings. First is sufficiently and then efficiently. Jesus in his earthly ministry sufficiently gave all the information that was necessary to see him as the Christ, to know exactly that he is who he is claiming to be. But then we will also see that the spirit efficiently, meaning without fail, witnesses to that truth that we might see it and behold it and then come to cherish it. And so what we'll do this morning is walk through this verse by verse, but a couple of things I'm going to add into the first section, because what I really want us to see is the witness of Christ to rebels. Now, to set the scene here for just a moment, let's just kind of go back a little bit. At the close of the Old Testament, there is a period of time known as the prophetic silence or the uh, intertestamental period. This whole idea is that for just a period of time, there seems to be silence from God. That there is no new revelation being given, but certainly they have the Old Testament, which is clear and perfect revelation of everything that God intended to reveal in the Old Testament. I would argue, namely, the person of Christ. And as they are looking into this, what you ultimately see is the Pharisees begin to divert and create for themselves a different type of system. A system that is a means of not looking to Christ, not looking to God for their justification, but instead looking to their ability to keep the law for justification. One of the things that we will look at in here is the idea of creating for yourself a God that is contrary to the God that is revealed in Scripture. In our day and time, we often see juvenile versions of this. They don't really grow up to maturity, to what they will actually become. But the Pharisaical system had. The Pharisaical system had looked into all of the law and said, I'm going to craft for myself something that when I look into it, it's going to show me how awesome I am. It's going to show me how good I am at keeping God's law. Now, first and foremost, this is a total perversion of the intention of the law, which is to be your schoolmaster or guardian until Christ has come. It's to show you your faults and failures. And so what their desire was to do is break the mirror so that when they looked back, they saw a broken mirror and not a broken man. And what we come to in this passage is Jesus to some degree shifting from how the world will receive you to how those who are religious will receive you. And 
particularly those who would be more of the pharisaical system. And when I say religious, I know that's a broad term nowadays. But the people who would look into the law and say, I can do this. I can actually fulfill this. I can walk in these things. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene and begins to teach with unique and divine authority, immediately the pharisaical system begins to be a bit uh, crushed. As divine authority enters in, as he is calling them back to understanding the law the way it is intended to be understood, that you need to look to one who is able to fulfill the law perfectly and see one that will sacrifice himself for your sin, they immediately begin to have friction. And now that friction is reaching ahead. We are getting to the point where these men will find themselves breaking the law that they say they aim to fulfill to see Christ condemned. And what I really want to kind of look into is first and foremost, the adequate and sufficient witness of Christ that there is no reason, there is no means by which a Pharisee can say, well, we didn't know. So let's look at just a couple of things that the scripture points us to this morning. If you look at verse 22, it says this, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. I want to pause there. Because you kind of see this idea of a hypothetical. If Jesus hadn't come, then they would not be guilty of sin. So is Jesus then saying that if he had not come, that if he had not dwelt on the earth, preached and taught and ultimately sacrificed himself for sin, that the Pharisees, those who he is looking at, those who are religious in nature, would not have had any sin whatsoever? The answer is a resounding no. The law has already condemned them. But let me tell you what they've done to deceive themselves. They've equated love and faith in God to obedience to the law. They are not the same. Friends, can I just articulate maybe for a moment that there are people who are unregenerate altogether that do a better job of not lying than you do. There are people who actually care for their families probably better than we do, that honor their father and mothers better than we do. But that is not a means of justification. They still have broken other areas of the law and that law condemns them. And it condemns them perfectly and justly. When Jesus shows up on the scene, essentially what he is doing to the Pharisees is pointing out to them, you can keep every single one of the 10 commandments to the best of your ability and nonetheless you will be condemned in your sin because you have broken at bare minimum one once. You have rebelled. You were born in rebellion. And so when Jesus is coming, he says, if it's not to imply that they would not be without sin altogether, it's that they might have continued in ignorance of their true and greatest sin, which is being a God-hater. That even the Pharisees, as they were pious in nature, as they would exalt themselves in their love for God, Jesus came to show them that their love for God was in actuality a love for self. It was a lie altogether. And should they have a love for some divine being that they have crafted in their mind, it is not a true love for the God who is revealed in Scripture. It is an idol that they have crafted. And so what then, how then has Jesus proclaimed his person? How can Jesus in verse 22 say, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. The reason he says this is because of the perfection of the revelation that is in Christ Jesus. And hear me when I say this, perfection in revelation. He is not a means, a kind of sort of representation of the Father. He is an exact imprint of his nature. So I just want to highlight a couple of things for you. First and foremost, we see that Jesus came proclaiming the Father in his person. When one looked to Jesus, who were they beholding? They were beholding God. They saw him and they saw him in a glorious way. Look at John 1, 9 through 11. It says this, 
the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is speaking of Christ. He was coming into the world, giving light to absolutely everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He was uh, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The light of God entered the world in the person of Christ. That psalm that we read this morning in our call to worship, that idea of his light shining on us, the light of his face. Brothers and sisters, the light that it shines on you is the light of Christ's face. You behold it because he has come to reveal it. Should you want and desire to know the Father, you look into the face of Jesus. And in looking into the face of Jesus, you see the Father perfectly. Now, here's what's interesting. Interesting. He uses this as a means of, a, of essentially a strike one against the Pharisees. You have rejected the light that has come into the world. You go forth into the world proclaiming that God is light and he's going to give light to the nations. And then the light arises and you cover your eyes. You don't long to see it because it is true that you are actually a God hater longing to justify your sin and yourself. But John 14, 9 says this, even concerning the apostles. Jesus said to him, speaking to Philip, have I been so long with you and you still do not know me? And he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Friends, Christ's person is a perfect revelation of the Father. I can't articulate this clear enough and, 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 and I can't even express the importance of this. There are those who would say that Christ does to some degree reveal the Father, but he isn't actually the exact representation That is a demeaning of his person. It is an assault on his character. It's an expression of hatred toward him. When we look to the scriptures, what we have to conclude is that the person of God simply dwelling among people is a perfect expression of the Father. And all who look to him see, as Hebrews 1 says, the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. That what we see in Christ's person is the radiance of the glory of God. Do you know the word radiance? Why would it be added in Hebrews? We could have just simply said that it's the exact imprint, the expression of his nature. Why the radiance of the glory of God? Because, brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't have a demeaned image. In Christ, you have a perfect, glorious image that every saint who looks to it thinks to himself, what a radiant, glorious image of God in Christ. That when we look to him, he is to be our treasure. He is the expression, the highest expression of beauty. And what you see in the Pharisees is a suppression of this to such a degree that they would call him not of God, but they would call him a demon. This is the true wickedness of the human heart, that even in the true light of Christ, they would call him darkness. Observation number three I'd like to point out. Jesus taught proclaiming the Father and the gospel in his teaching, not only has he given them sufficient witness in his person, but he has given them su- su- sufficient, words are hard, sufficient witness in his teaching. And just notice a couple of verses here. John 5, 25 through 29 Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son able also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who hear in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In this simple verse, what we see is a Christ 
who has the authority in his voice to call dead men to life, not once, but twice. He has the authority to call dead men, spiritually dead men to life, simply by looking and saying, live. And then again, we see he has that same authority on the corpse that is rotting in the grave to come out and to have new, perfect life, glorified life that will never have any hint of death on it ever again. But not only that, we see that he is given judgment. Who will God share his glory with? Who will God share his authority with, his power with? To this we say none. But to Christ he gives judgment, the authority to raise men from the dead and to give them spiritual life. He would give this to any other but himself? No, in Christ and in his perfect teaching, he reminds us that what you have in Jesus is the perfect image of God. But he also reminds us of the gospel in his teaching. And this gospel is not new. This is what's so vitally important. The gospel is not, this this proclamation that Jesus makes in John 6 that we're about to read, is not a new proclamation of look to Jesus and live. It is simply perhaps one a bit more clear. It is one that is saying to you, you need to look to Jesus and in believing in him, you may have life in his name. Listen to what John 6 27 through 29 says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is surprising even that the Pharisees, that the people who are following Jesus at this point think this a difficult thing. How is Abraham justified? How is he counted as righteous? Every Pharisee knew this. Why was he counted righteous? Because he believed God. This is the exact same good news. Look to God. Look to Christ. And in Christ you will have the gospel and you will actually be counted as righteous. Jesus has proclaimed clearly in his teaching of not only who he is in his person, but in the proclamation of the gospel that he is indeed the promised one. A rejection of him is simply an indication of a greater sin. A sin so great that it would bar you from actually seeing the truths of God's word because you hate it. It ultimately comes down to an affection. But not only has Jesus demonstrated that he is the glory of God in his person and in his teaching, but he has also done so in his work. Perhaps one of the most lovely chapters in the book of Matthew is this moment where Jesus is expressing his authority. Matthew's recording this, and the whole idea is, I want you to see the authority of the person of Christ. I want you to understand that the authority that he has is an authority that only God can actually have. So let's just look at a couple of verses here. Matthew 8, 26 through 27 says this, And he said to them, This is when the disciples are on the boat freaking out because they think they're going to drown. And he says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. We read this and oftentimes we gloss right over it. What actually happens is God commands, Christ commands the sea to stop cease, be still, and it immediately obeys. It bows to his authority and to his will. But not only do we see him express authority over creation, we also see him express authority and demonstrate that through works in Matthew 9, 4 through 6 that says this, but Jesus knowing, excuse me, but Jesus knowing their thoughts said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, 
pick up your bed and go home. Why did Jesus tell the paralytic to get up and walk? It wasn't to demonstrate that he had authority to make a lame man walk. It was to demonstrate that he had the authority to forgive sin. And the Pharisees knew one thing. Only God can forgive sin. This is the degree of suppression that takes place in a God-hater. That even the Pharisees, who had all of this revelation, who knew that only God is able to forgive sin, and Jesus essentially says to them, I've forgiven his sin. Take up your bed and walk. And he claims this authority as his own. Jesus has sufficiently displayed, should he be placed on any trial in any courtroom on the planet, all he need do is sit there. But alas, in his grace, he has taught us who he is, and he has shown us who he is in his words, in his miracles. And John would articulate it this way, perhaps almost laughably as he's concluding writing his gospel. He says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He is essentially saying, I don't have time. I can't write of all that Christ has done. And not to mention, it's not as though he has ceased in his labors. He is still bearing fruit through the church of God. He is still at work. He is still producing glorious, glorious fruit birth in the saints of God. So he has clearly displayed these things. They are perfectly clear for us to behold. But what then, how then, do we have people who perceive these things, let's place it perhaps in the more modern day context of those who are raised in the church, who hear the good news of the gospel over and over again, and yet they look to him and reject him. Well, let's see what the Pharisees did here, because the Pharisees essentially attribute all of those things, his person, his work, his teaching, to Satan. This is the extent of hatred. We we look at light, we see it, we behold it as it is, and we think to ourselves, well, this must be darkness. That's the extent of our self-deceit. We look at it and we call what is good evil and evil good. And just look at a couple of verses here. In John 8, 52 through 53, it says this, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Listen to this. Who do you make yourself out to be? Because of his claim of his person, knowing that he is throughout the entire of his earthly ministry, claiming to be truly God and truly man, they say, who are you claiming to be? You must have a demon. And in his works, they attribute that it is by the prince of demons that he casts out demons. Matthew 9, 34 says, but the Pharisees says, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. This is the suppression that takes place in the pharisaical mind to make sure that they preserve their system. Now, if I could just for a minute perhaps bring this forward to us because I'm convinced that we do the exact same thing. It might look a bit different. Perhaps it is that we suppress the truth to such a degree that we say, well, there certainly cannot be a creator God. Although general revelation is proclaiming day in and day out that there is a creator and it even expresses his nature. It expresses his power and his authority. So before we jump on to the Pharisees here, perhaps we would do well to ask ourselves, in what ways are we suppressing truth? In what ways, when we come to the authority of God's word, do we say, eh, and turn the page? God is clear. He has spoken. He has spoken through his son. How is it then for those of us who are sitting here and find the word of God under, because of the inspiration of the Spirit, seeing its beauty, treasuring Christ, how is it that we have arrived at a place where we say, all glory be to Christ. When we look at him and the light no longer blinds us, but it is that by which we see all other things. In Christ, we have these. But to go a bit further, I want to make this clear here. I want you to see the full expression of their hatred. 
I want you to see even the full expression, the full expression of our hatred before God in his infinite grace converted us. And if you are not here this morning, everything that I'm about to say, I mean, I'm sorry, if you were not here, you are here. If you are not in Christ this morning, then everything that I'm about to say is in actuality applied to you. I don't want you to think I'm being harsh, but I do want you to understand your natural state before God apart from the application of Christ's finished work on your account. So let's just consider this statement. This is going on into verse uh, 24. No, forgive me. Verse 23, he says this, whoever hates me hates my father also. Now, perhaps you think that's a really simple statement. It is to some degree a simple statement, but I want you to understand that the subject of this sentence is a, is a participle. Essentially, he's articulating that the, the, the identity of the individual who hates God finds itself in the very first statement that's there. Whoever hates me. Jesus is essentially saying to the people, to those who would reject him as Christ, he identifies them in one word that essentially means Christ-hater. That's their identity. So let's, let's put to death the idea of neutrality, can we? Can we put to death the idea that there are men who are neutral with God, who perhaps are doing their best, they want to pursue God to some degree, they want to love him a little bit. There is no such thing that if you are apart from Christ, if you are not one who has been in him, that loves him and cherishes him, the greatest way to identify you is Christ-hater. Now, I'm not doing this to be harsh with you, but I want you to understand There is no neutrality with God. The participle here indicates that the whole idea is their identity is God-hater. That that's where we stand. Now, you hear that and you think, my goodness, how harsh is this? And it is. And perhaps it is that you have rejected him altogether. You think him to be a mirage. You think him to be some type of King Arthur figure that's simply myth. And so you suppress it to some degree just by saying there's no way he even exists. But then there's another type that I think is all the more wretched. There are those that would like to accept Christ, but only accept Christ on their terms. Perhaps even taking the clear revelation, all the things that we have just discussed, and say, well, I'd like Jesus, but I don't like these things. And we begin to mold him and craft him into our own image. Let me me tell you what that's called. It's called an idol. It matters not what you call it. It does not matter if you look to it and you call it Jesus. It doesn't matter if you call it Christ. If it is not the person revealed in holy writ, then it is an idol. And I I really genuinely do think that there are more of us that do this than we care to admit. And by God's grace, oftentimes we come into the faith with this false perception of Christ, but by the Spirit of God, He ever constantly molds our mind, molds our thinking into seeing Him as He is and loving Him as He is. But what of those who would look to us and say, I love Jesus, but are you aware that on any given Saturday, I've got a pretty strong chance of having a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness knock on my door. And there's great desire is to see us both say, well, we agree. Let me tell you something. When we disagree on Christ, we agree on nothing. There's nothing that we agree on. For Christ is all. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. They cannot have any fulfillment of the promises that God has made in any other person. They cannot have it in one who is not divine. They cannot have it in one who is not raised from the dead. They cannot have it in one who is not truly God and truly man. When we look to Christ, we must see him as he is. We must know that all the revelation that he gives is perfect in nature. And I would like to perhaps say it this way. There are many who claim to love Christ but demean his person, teaching, and work. 
They, they say they love him, but loving a Christ that is made in any image other than the Christ revealed in Scripture is idolatry and perhaps expresses an even greater hatred than an all-out rejection of him because it's seeing him and saying, I see that the Scripture says that about him, but I don't like it. It's essentially looking at him and saying, I wish you were a bit more beautiful. Those who would stand before God and aim to add something to the gospel of Christ do this exact same thing. They stand before God on the day of judgment and they say to him, well, yes, I had Christ, but I also had. And they exalt their works thinking to themselves, I'll make Christ a bit better. This cannot be done. It is an indictment. It is a a revelation, as it were, of our hatred for him. So what does Jesus do here? He then points this out and he points us really back. He says, I want you to understand this through an appropriate lens and I want you to understand it really through not one, but two Psalms. So Psalm 35 and Psalm 69, Jesus quotes here. It says, by the word that is written in their law. Now that's really interesting language. In their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. So first, do they actually hate him without cause, without any reason whatsoever? So the answer to that is, No, 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 they hate him because he is unlike them. He's holy, he's just, he's righteous, he's God, and they are in and of themselves God-haters. What Jesus is doing here is removing any type of hatred of him apart apart from hating him for who he is. Can you hate Christ for the sin that he has committed against you? No, for he has no sin. Can you hate Christ because he perhaps has made your life a bit more difficult after he called you to saving faith and then sees you go through periods of persecution, trial, and tribulation? No, because he has already endured every trial and tribulation that would keep you out of spending eternity with him. He is infinitely gracious and kind. There is no means of hating him for anything other than the fact that you are a rebel who hates God. And so as he elaborates on this, he, I'm convinced, points us back to two passages, Psalm 35 and Psalm 69, which both have the exact quotation of, they hated me without cause. But why the language, their law? Now, this is important because all the ways that he has conveyed who he is, he says in their law to point them to the fact that in their law he has been testified about as well. That in their law over and over and over again the gospel is preached. In their law over and over and over again the person of Christ is revealed. In their law alone they could see the glory of the gospel. And so let's just look at two things. I think Jesus is reminding them of two major premises, one from each psalm. So Psalm 35, 22 through 26 says this, you have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause. My God and my Lord, vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. And let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, aha, our heart's desire. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. He warns them of their impending shame. If you think that you will have some victory over Christ, They will see him in just a brief period of time in the grave. And he reminds them even before he is placed in that tomb, you will have no victory over me. You will not look to me and think that you have your heart's desire for there will be a day when I will raise from the dead and make you all seem the fool. to, To see you as foolish as those who would rejoice at David being cast into the lion's den. Ultimately, those who rejoiced at David's, I mean, at Daniel's defeat were cast into the pit and killed themselves. In the exact same way, we see our Lord 
foretell and warn them of his impending victory and their impending shame. But all the more he tells them of what is actually to come. He reminds them of what their law testifies about. Psalm 69 is messianic in nature. It's clear, but it's also in it words that will be fulfilled in just a few moments. Listen to the language. Just a couple of verses, three or four from Psalm 69. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Why am I a stranger to you? Because you never knew me. Psalm 69.9, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who approach me, you have, uh, have fallen on me. He reminds them not only of what he has done previously, but what he will actually do here in a brief, I'm sorry, all previously, but then the idea of the reproaches, all of those sins, all that wickedness being placed on him. But then Psalm 69, 21, you will all be familiar with this one. They gave me poison for food and for my, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. He is enduring this. It is on the horizon. I almost wonder if the Pharisees that perhaps would have heard this as they are looking to Christ being crucified as that sour wine would touch his lips that they would perhaps consider Consider, ooh, Psalm, that's what he was saying. They see because the law testifies to it. When he, Jesus looks at them and says their law, he is giving them another reason for their blindness, for their condemnation. The law has testified to who Christ is. Christ in his person has testified that he is the promised Messiah. Christ in his word has, pro- has testified and promised that he is the true Messiah. And Christ in his work and labor is abundantly clear. There is no means for us to look to Jesus and assume that he is anything other than what he says he is. There's every ounce of evidence leans, uh, leads us to that case leads us to say Christ is Lord. But they're blind. They're blind. We're blind. Can I ask you a question? Many of you perhaps this is the case that the gospel was preached to you and the first time you hear it, yes, this is the glory of Christ. This is the glory of God. It's the gospel and I stake my all on it. But perhaps it is that you, like me, heard the gospel. You had heard evidence after evidence after evidence. You knew Jesus' teaching. You knew what he said. You knew that he said, I am, that the true works of God is not to go be laborsome, but to trust in the finished labor of Christ. You knew that in his work he was able to raise the dead. You knew that in his resurrection we see confirmation of the beauty of the gospel, that his sacrifice was accepted before God and in him is life. You knew all of this. And, and yet, you still really couldn't see it. You got it, but you just kind of saw Jesus as a guy who died on the cross, not as the, the, the radiance of the glory of God. And this is where, when we look at this next phrase, these next two verses, they almost seem a bit odd to be introduced here. Now, Jesus is about to, as we hit chapter 16, really focus on developing our understanding of the Holy Spirit of God. But he introduces this right here because I think he's really articulating something to us. That all of the evidence that Jesus has presented in his life is sufficient. It's sufficient at bare minimum for one thing. For us to see him and for us to know full well that he is divine and to reveal that our rejection of him is actually our hatred of God. And the problem is that we will only do what is in line with our nature. We will only do what is in line with our affection. So how is it then that we go from being haters of God 
enemies of God, ones who suppress the truth, ones who look at the glory of general revelation and cast it aside and equate it to perhaps evolution or something of that nature. Or perhaps it is we look at Christ and we think, well, these men simply wrote these words. They don't really have divine inspiration behind them. How do we get from a hatred of God to a love of God? How do we get from being the Pharisee who would bend all of these things to our own wills to then gladly submitting to them because we have a love for Jesus? Brothers and sisters, the reason that we stand here today, the reason that we are glad to sing all glory be to Christ is because Jesus' evidence is sufficient, but the Holy, Spirit's, the Holy Spirit of God's work is efficient. It always works. It is mighty. The reason that you're able to see Jesus and say, in all of his miracles, say, see God work. The reason you're able to see him crucified and say, there's the great expression of the love of God. The reason that you're able to look to the resurrection and see your hope, to see your delight, to see your joy. The reason that the treasures of this world seem frail and feeble to you, and yet Christ seems as though he is all, because he is all, is because the Holy Spirit of God has given you eyes to behold that glorious light. And apart from him, you would still find yourself with the Pharisees saying, I don't see it. It is in the Spirit of God and in his help, in his, uh, in his giving, in his power to grant us the ability to see. So why then do we have verse 26 and 27? Let's just read them really quickly. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So a couple of things I want to elaborate on here first. So first things first, what we see in the sending of the Spirit is an infinite grace from God. Let's just consider this for a moment, that apart from the Spirit of God coming, we would see all the splendor of Christ and we would continue to hate him. So let's just consider the idea that God has given a perfect revelation of, of himself to all of the world and they see him and they hate him. You would assume that the reaction to that would be nothing but wrath and fury do them. How dare you reject my beloved son? You hate me? Sure, wrath and fury abounds. But no, instead we see grace, that God in his grace then sends a helper that we might see rightly that we might see him as he is. This is the glory of the Trinity and salvation. Brothers and sisters, oftentimes we think about the gospel and we'll say God saves, as we should, but we do well to consider the personal, the intricate, the actual work of each member of the Godhead, that we can see God in his grace would be willing to send not only his son, but also his spirit, that his son would lay down his life in our stead, that we might actually have his life. But even then, apart from the spirit of God's work, we would scorn the life that Christ would offer to us. The Trinity perfectly brings about salvation. This is one of the reasons that if there is no Trinity, there is no gospel. There is no good news apart from the triune God. Each person plays a vital and crucial role. And that's why when we come to this, we see, oh, glory be to Christ. He's made everything known. But simultaneously, we must say, Spirit of God, illuminate my mind. Give me eyes to see the joys, the beauties, the splendors of Christ. Helper come. And praise the Father that he would be willing to not only send his beloved son to lay down his life for us, but he would also send his spirit that proceeds from him that we might see rightly. This is the glory of a triune God in the gospel. But not only do we see the grace of God sent, sending the spirits to such hard-hearted rebels, we also see that the spirit then brings about and uses the witness of the church. I don't want to make this... Um, an opportunity for us to sit uh, on the sidelines. 
You see, the Spirit of God continues to bear witness to the world today. And He does so primarily through the Word of God and the church. The Word of God goes out from the proclamation of the gospel. And the Word of God goes out not only in the proclamation of the gospel from a, from a Lord's Day gathering. We preach the Word, but it goes out by the saints of God carrying it. Now, this is the splendor of it. We don't really have the ability to convey these great truths in perfection, but the Spirit of God does. We go forth preaching the gospel and trusting that the same Spirit who gave us eyes to see the glory of Christ, who gave Peter the eyes to see the glory of Christ, will also and can give other, other people eyes to see the glory and the splendor of Christ. And so what we have here is a twofold witness that God ultimately bursts through the finished work of Christ. He sends the Spirit that we might see and behold, and then the Spirit sends the church to proclaim the gospel message to the nations. The reason that we can look at this psalm that we read this morning, let the nations be glad, is because the church of God, uh, through the power and through the power of the Spirit of God, carries the gospel to the nations. The reason we know every tribe, tongue, and nation will dwell around the throne is because God has, in His grace, sacrificed Himself through Christ for, sacrificed Himself for every member of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and the Spirit of God then will draw every single one that they might actually have on that great day, members of every tribe, tongue, and nation gathering around the throne to sing loudly the praises of Christ. This is the splendor of Christ crucified and the Spirit's ability to help us see, to give us the ability to see. Friends, my hope is, more than anything else, is that we walk out of here today seeing the splendor of Christ, but knowing that in every, every moment, every just brief moment of treasuring Christ above everything else and seeing Him and delighting in Him, that we look to the Spirit of God and we are actually able to say, all glory be to God, for He has brought all of that about. It is not of us. It is certainly born in us, but it is born of the Spirit of God. So just to remind you of our sermon in a sentence this morning, the person, word, and work of Jesus sufficiently teaches that he is the Christ, yet the Spirit efficiently witnesses to this truth.